welcome back to another exciting episode of Warehousing Unboxed, an IWLA podcast. In today's episode, we're here to talk about today's warehouse. We'll dive deep into some of the top trends and challenges that third-party logistics companies are met with on a day-to-day basis. Then, IWLA membership director Jennifer Resney sits down with two members and leaders of the industry to discuss the state of third-party logistics, warehousing, and how these business leaders adapt to entering, well, the future. The 3PO warehouse industry has undergone significant changes in recent years, driven by technology, global economic shifts, and evolving customer expectations. Let's start by looking at some of the top trends that are defining the industry today in 2023. Trend number one, e-commerce explosion. It should come as no surprise that the explosive growth of e-commerce has had a massive impact on 3PL warehouses. With consumers demanding faster shipping times and greater product variety, 3PLs are being pushed to adapt. They're investing in automation, robotics, and sophisticated warehouse management systems to meet the demands of e-commerce giants and smaller online retailers alike. Trend number two, customer expectations and increased need for customer satisfaction. Customer expectations are higher than ever, and 3PLs are recognizing the critical importance of delivering top-notch customer satisfaction. It's not just about getting products from point A to point B anymore. It's about providing an exceptional experience throughout the supply chain at a speed faster than ever. Meeting and exceeding customer expectations has become a driving force in the industry, and with the increased desire for just-in-time delivery, 3PLs are continuing to expedite their services. Trend number three, Data-driven decision-making. Data is king in the modern warehouse. 3PLs are harnessing the power of big data and analytics to optimize their operations. Predictive analytics are being used to forecast demand, improve inventory management, and enhance overall efficiency. Real-time tracking and monitoring are also helping companies provide better visibility to their customers. Trend number four, omni-channel fulfillment. Today's consumers expect a seamless shopping experience, whether they're buying online, in stores, or a combination of both. 3PLs are adapting to this by offering omni-channel fulfillment solutions. They're integrating their systems to manage inventory and orders across multiple sales channels, providing customers with the convenience they crave. As these trends and many continue to unfold, one thing is certain, the world of 3PL warehousing is evolving at a rapid pace. challenges of the industry. With this ever-evolving landscape of logistics and supply chain management, 3PLs not only face a multitude of trends to catch up with, but are also often met with challenges to test that adaptability and resilience. These challenges are not mere roadblocks. They're opportunities for growth for many warehouses across America. So, what are some of the biggest challenges facing the industry today, you ask? Challenge number one, labor shortages. The ongoing labor shortage is a significant hurdle for 3PLs. With the growth of e-commerce, there's a constant need for skilled warehouse workers, truck drivers, and logistics professionals. 
The competition for talent is fierce and companies are having to get creative with recruitment and retention strategies. Challenge number two, supply chain disruptions. Supply chain disruptions have become all too common from natural disasters to trade disputes. These events can wreak havoc on 3PL operations, leading to delays, increased cost, and frustrated customers. Finding ways to build resilience into the supply chain is essential, and many warehouses across America do this every day. Challenge number three, cybersecurity threats. With the increased reliance on technology and data, 3PLs are becoming prime targets for cyber attacks. Data breaches can result in significant financial losses and damage to the company's reputation. Ensuring robust cybersecurity measures is a constant challenge in this digital age. Challenge number four, regulatory compliance. The logistics industry is highly regulated with a complex web of rules and regulations to navigate. Keeping up with changing compliance requirements, particularly in areas like customs and trade, is a headache for many 3PLs. Non-compliance can lead to fines and disruptions in the operations. While these are just a few of the many challenges facing the industry today, one thing is clear. Every trend brings its own unique set of obstacles to overcome. The labor shortages may demand creative recruitment strategies, supply chain disruptors may necessitate enhanced resilience, cybersecurity threats may require robust defenses, and regulatory compliance may call for added steps to routine operations. However, in each challenge lies the opportunity for growth, adaptation, and innovation. The 3PL industry, with its unwavering commitment to delivering goods efficiently and effectively, stands ready to tackle these challenges head-on, especially IWLA members. Speaking of IWLA members, today IWLA membership director Jennifer Resney sat down with two IWLA warehouse members to discuss the current state of the industry, as well as how their businesses are adapting to these trends and challenges. Please enjoy former IWLA Chairman and Linden Warehouse and Distribution's President, Jared Stadlin, and IWLA Warehouse Member and Broad Range Logistics CEO, Ari Milstein. But first, a quick word from our sponsor of today's episode, Camelot 3PL Software. Introducing Camelot 3PL Software, the unrivaled leader in 3PL warehouse management solutions. Empowering 3PLs with cutting-edge technology, we help businesses streamline operations and boost efficiency. Our state-of-the-art software ensures seamless inventory tracking, real-time analytics, and intuitive order management, optimizing every step of the warehousing process. With a user-friendly interface and unmatched configurability, Camelot 3PL software empowers businesses of all sizes to thrive in today's dynamic 3PL industry. Join countless satisfied clients and experience the power of our innovative platform where efficiency meets excellence. Unlock the true potential of your 3PL warehouse with Camelot. Visit us today at 3PLsoftware.com. Welcome to Warehousing Unboxed. My name is Jennifer Resney. I'm the membership director here at IWLA, and I'm very happy to welcome two of our our very valued IWLA members. We have uh, President of Linden Warehouse, Jared Stanlin, and we have the CEO of Broad Range, Ari Milstein. The topic today we're going to be talking about is the state of 3PL warehouse industry. So just to give a little start, uh, maybe Jared, can you reintroduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and and how long you've been with IWLA? Sure. So my name is Jared Stadlin. 
I am the president of Linden Warehouse and Distribution, which is a service provider primarily on the East Coast. We've got a large port proximate presence in the New York, New Jersey marketplace. Our headquarters are in Linden, New Jersey, which is just about nine miles from the port of New York. My own background is an interesting one that I came to this industry in a little bit of an unorthodox way. I had an undergraduate degree in, in business and finance from the University of Michigan and then went on to law school where uh, I studied at NYU, became a corporate attorney. And I did that for a couple of years doing business transactions and uh, securities work, and then had the opportunity to join Linden. And here we are 20 years later, where we've really been able to, to grow our warehousing footprint. And we're an interesting company in that we're both an operating 3PL, uh, primarily servicing industrial clients who sell into the personal care, home and, and personal goods industries, as well as various manufacturings and verticals. I've been involved with IWA most of that time. Um, it's interesting because you, in this industry, building your network, understanding what's out there in terms of an organization that can help you advocate for positions that you believe in and that benefit the industry and also uh, provide education to our teams is, is vital. And I found that within IWA. And so over the years, I wound up having a problem saying no in every time I was asked to do something. I gladly said yes. And that culminated with me chairing several committees with IWA over the years, including government and regulatory affairs, where I still participate. And then eventually I became the, uh, after serving through all the officer positions, became the the chair of, of the IWA. So I'm, I guess, uh, just past being immediate past chairman of, of the IWA. So have a great understanding of the industry, a real passion for it. And so glad to participate in Unboxed episode two. Well, thank you, Jared. Ari, tell us a, a little bit of your background. I just want to, I always love to tell the story for broad range. So one of your, your first team member, actually how you joined is that uh, your team member just showed up at, at our national convention at the registration desk. And I was uh, back at IWLA headquarters and got a call from, from your team. And they said, hey, we want to join right now. And we want to get registered for the convention right now. And uh, and we're so looking forward to being a member and, and attending conventions. So so that's how I know you, you kind of came to be with IWLA. So but I always love telling that story. So, yes, it's uh, and I think that's pretty indicative of uh, some of the speed with which our uh, business has grown and developed over the last uh, five years. So very semi nice to meet you, Jared, as well. Some similar overlaps. I also went to NYU uh, for undergraduate with a business and finance degree and ended up moving also a bit unorthodoxly through various channels to the finding my way into the warehousing and logistics and 3PL world. I had uh, started in uh, more the real estate end of things, had run a automated warehousing business, which was building the first automated parking systems and starting to use technology and storage and you know, parking is really just a, a, another version of warehousing. And as sort of the culture and world of consumer behavior changed, started to realize where some of those technology and warehousing and real estate overlaps would come together and found myself working in towards a position in, in you know, participating in an ownership of the, the Broad Range of Logistics facility, which was a 20-year-old uh, operation based out of Atlanta. Uh, over the last five years, we've grown to almost 7 million square feet with areas in 
Houston and Pennsylvania and Atlanta, Indianapolis, et cetera, and have really worked hard and, and where IWA has been very valuable to us and a, a resource and network that uh, has, has really helped develop our business opportunities as well as resources and, and you know, education, et cetera, is related to being able to connect and, and, and being a service provider for the service providers, if you will, being able to create opportunities where along the various layers of the supply chain world, uh, from transportation to the importing, even to the last mile fulfillment guys, throughout that whole process, the ability to work as a unit and create sort of end-to-end solutions and being able to plug into where that end-to-end solution is needed, allow for economies of scale and synergies between shared resources, shared space, et cetera, has really been you know, number one, where IWLA has, has been a, a fantastic organization, as well as where the opportunity to interface amongst the people and, and groups within that area has really created the extreme growth that we've seen over the last five years. Fantastic. Well, thank you both. So Ari, with that, with your, you know, uh, expansion, where do you see the industry? You know, we I know you're doing your strategic planning and you're looking uh, based on economic indicators and and what's happening, you know, kind of give us a little timeline. Where do you see the industry maybe one year from now, uh, maybe a few years out from now, and maybe again, long range planning, maybe that, you know, what's ha- what's going to happen in the industry, maybe even 20 plus years from now? So I think right now the industry is going through a significant transitionary period. There was a lot of, you know, demand that ramped up through COVID and a lot of, you know, uh, congestion that that people were planning and working around. Uh, As things start to normalize, I think finally companies are going to have a chance to not just be reacting to immediate concerns and needs to maintain, you know, operations and, and flow of goods, but we'll actually start being able to look at the dynamics of how technology and most importantly, the flow of information and ability to share information has changed a lot of what was typically a fixed infrastructure, independent, each company needing their own facilities to operate and service their customers with number one, the expectations of customers continuing to get shorter and shorter in the immediacy of of product that they're expecting to receive, as well as the ability to share information across multiple platforms, plus the volatility of product flow. All of those, I think, are trending the industry towards more shared spaces, more outsourced services, looking at ways to be able to capitalize within each, you know, sort of uh, silos values to create the flexibility, I think, that's necessary to be competitive in today's world of consumer expectations. And that flexibility, I think, is going to continue to drive a lot of the major companies to be looking to create multi-use facilities and to sort of, I think, consolidate the the lines between, you know, sort of straight distribution and third-party logistics, I think, are going to continue to get blurred as more and more companies start to outsource needs, specifically because the inventory tracking, the ability for them to source orders through all the different platforms they have in the communications, etc., allow them to be a lot more flexible in what their actual physical space needs would be and physical static nature of, of uh, what space and, and warehousing and, and logistics require. Jared, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I think that's right on. I think we're going to get to see continued innovation as people look to figure out how to deal with what we'll call for this purpose, distribution velocity, right? You want to see goods moving through the supply chain. And, and in the past two years, we observed what happens when you got 
roadblocks in the supply chain or delays in the supply chain. So our, our you know, we've gone from a country that embraced just-in-time inventory where businesses could keep ideal optimal inventory levels low but still continue to service their customers by delivering that inventory just in time. And then what happened was we saw that accelerate even further through technology and it was almost like they were placing orders just in the nick of time. A uh, manufacturing site would call upon a distribution center to ship out the materials they need to make the goods that people want just in time for j- that production to occur. And so what happened when we saw this, this congestion in the supply chain is now you had costs because things were not arriving when people needed them. There was a backlog, et cetera. So everything that we're going to see coming out a year and five years from now will hopefully be more robust because of the challenges that we went through in the last you know, 18 to 24 months. And I think in the near term, one year out, one of the things that 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 may happen is that we're in a little bit of an industry-wide or a countrywide lull. If you look at you know growth rates of the economy right now, we're dealing with a situation where you know, by design due to inflation, we're trying to slow the economy down a little bit. And that is happening. And so what that does is all the investment in space and labor and technology that happened throughout the supply chain crisis and coming out of COVID is still there. And now we have a chance to maybe catch your breath. Now, I, there are sure there are plenty of people, folks in this industry right now who are really, really busy, which is great and resilient. But there are certain industry verticals that have paused a bit. And this pause will allow us to get to a point where a year from now, if economic conditions are better and improved, which they hopefully will be, you're going to see the 3PL industry really ready to rock and roll and and move forward at, at a tremendous speed and can accommodate volumes without congestion because they've made that necessary investment in additional space labor and technology. Now, hopefully five years from now, what we see is continued investment in automation and technology so that, um, and, and we view it this way, that in this industry, technology is a workforce multiplier. You know, when the economy is really good, you get to a point where employment, you know, where unemployment is super low and there are not enough. It becomes really challenging to find people to fill open slots in in the warehouse, whether that be in customer service, whether that be in the movement of physical, the physical movement of goods, whether that be in engineering or design or sales and marketing, whatever the case may be, you wind up with open positions that are unfilled. And technology enables us to do more with the existing workforce when those business volumes increase. So I think, you know, five years from now, as Ari pointed out, you might have some shifts in the paradigm. I know he mentioned multi multi-user, multi-client, or multi-provider type facilities, but we'll also see continued growth in technology. Now, I don't know enough to say whether we're going to have, the the AI is going to have the impact on our uh, industry that it may have on other industries, but I do think that there'll be a component in having technology that enables us to uh, work smarter and not harder. And that will hopefully continue to allow our industry to grow and handle the volume without creating a slowdown in distribution velocity or having any role in uh, congestion. So Jared, with that investment in technology, and you know, again, AI is is the buzzword of the day. If the day goes by where we don't hear the word AI, it's it's a strange day. But what what type of technology, if you can share, what is you know, what are you looking at? What is Lyndon uh, looking to do 
uh, to help in that decision-making process, maybe in that, you know, reduction of errors? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. I'm first going to talk generally, then I'll talk a little bit about Linden. So I had the uh, privilege of, of going out with an industry group uh, two weeks ago to see a facility that handles tens of thousands of cartons, if not more, every evening. So tremendous volume flowing through a particular facility. And one of the things that I found fascinating about that tour was they really took a holistic approach to the use of the warehouse space. One, they had multiple tiers of selection. So they had inventory stored in racks on and using automated storage and retrieval systems throughout the warehouse. But then they had their workforce working at height in various sections of the warehouse. And so you had selectors near the freight that was being selected. In addition, they had conveyors and scanning equipment that routed all of the selected material throughout the facility that can help them consolidate orders and load those last mile vehicles that they needed to load in, in their particular operation. And what was fascinating was that you had a little bit of everything. You had picking technology for the selectors um, where they were where they were connected to their WMS system and doing the manual picking process. You had automation where you had put away and replenishment happening pretty seamlessly using automation. You had routing of material using scanning, barcoding, and then conveyors that were directing all of it. Now, the interesting thing for them is they had an area that they referred to as, as almost like an air traffic control that sort of managed all of these differing technologies. And I do think over time, you're going to see those type of technologies be even more automated at requiring less individual user interface. Now, for Linden, we don't do that kind of volume. Uh, a lot of our goods are very heavy and are are uh, destined for, for industrial manufacturing destinations or exports or loading a lot of sea containers. So for us, we don't need to handle those tens of thousands of cartons in an evening. But what we do need to do is have complete visibility to what we're doing. We want to make sure that we have a very high level of accuracy in our shipment preparation and we want to ensure that we do it using the, the the right amount of labor, that we don't make it too labor intensive. And so for us, that required an investment in a new WMS system that we put in place. Key to our selection process in putting that WMS system were really two things. One is how versatile is the system in talking to other systems? So if we've got customers using an ERP system like SAP, does our system have the ability to talk to every different customer's system regardless of what they use. So we wanted a system that really worked well in terms of BizTalk, EDI, whatever standard a particular customer was on, how well does our system uh, have the ability to handshake with, with disparate systems? And two, we wanted the ability to really have use and visibility to our data. So you hear dashboarding as a buzzword in the industry. And dashboarding is a, just another way of saying is, how can I see a presentation of data that gives me enough information to make good decisions in running our business. So that was a part of, of, of what we attempted to do. Now then we're looking to interface with our system in, in a new and different ways. So we're looking again at handhelds and what are the optimal handhelds for us? What kind of tablets do we want to use? So you're, you're seeing a lot of that. I know that there are folks out there that have employed technologies in terms of robotics. I know that there are folks out there that are even using drones in taking physical inventory. So if you've got a racked warehouse 
and you've got pallets on your third tier or fourth tier of racking, as opposed to bringing down every pallet, you know, the drones can go ahead and give you, uh, you know, that bird's eye view. So, you know, that's what we've been doing, but I, I really find it interesting how you're seeing the integration of multiple areas of technology, depending on the application needed for the 3PL. Ari, what, what's happening at Broad Range? Sure. So it's interesting. And uh, Jared, it's a lot of uh, similar things to what, what he was referring to. You know, my belief is there's technology and AI and all of these new methodologies have a always will be impacting how the business is done and, and focused on. But really the data and flow of information and visibility of information and accuracy of information is really the most, what I think, critical path technology infrastructure that's continuing to be built out. You will have situations and scenarios where, like being discussed, you know, as, as coming from the automated parking world and learning a lot about automation in my previous lives, with automation comes a significant amount of standardization. And once you have put in all those, uh, you get a very static, uh, fixed operation that can produce for very specific, you know, in, in specific circumstances that those types of needs are there, the huge amounts of volume and efficiencies of, of, of work multipliers. Those are, you know, obviously the downside to that is just like uh, all other consumer uh, behaviors change, the more efficient the operations get, the expectations of what they're going to be able to receive will just change alongside it. So where instead of getting efficiency, you're really just staying ahead, staying relevant, if you will. And, and that, I think, is a critical component also as things develop is in order to be relevant, you are going to have to be having the types of technology and specifically the integrations between other systems and, and communication across platforms and the EDI and ADI type of data sharing. I also think, obviously, the, you know, with, with the AI and the predictive capabilities, all of these will create a lot more efficiencies within the business. But at the end of the day, the basic physics of our business is that products take up a certain amount of space. They got to move from point to point. There's limited ports. There's limited locations with which areas that product can flow into the country. And the technology, you know, shipping and, and, and boats are still the most effective way to move products in bulk. Trains are still the most effective way to use move product in bulk. And while I think there's a lot of technological change within the four walls that can be efficient and create a lot of efficiencies, those sort of what I would call bottlenecks in the overall supply chain world are really always going to be the limiting factors to how much efficiency you can create as long as you can open those pipelines wider. So you, you had mentioned earlier that your broad range is the, you know, the supplier of the suppliers. And, and with that, you know, as manufacturers and suppliers want product closer to the to the main market or to their their main facilities, how has nearshoring affected your business in your and in your planning? So nearshoring has definitely been a huge, uh, I would say, disruptor in the market and, and in, in my opinion, in a positive way. You know, having looked at the economic impacts and not just when, when a manufacturing plant opens, it's not just the product that they make that's moving, it's everything that's coming in to support the production of that. It's all the stuff that new, is being now produced and moved and now, you know, supporting the marketplace that it's that, that's buying and purchasing those goods. So the, the manufacturing creates a huge amount of flow. And every one of those things from the raw materials to the finished goods to the, you know, boxes and tapes and everything that goes into supporting a manufacturing operation will all continue. And all of those things need to 
move from one place to another. They've got to be stored. They have to be tracked. They have to be flowed in and at, at a rate that allows them to maximize their production capability. Because once you're putting the investment in a manufacturing facility, making sure that that production facility is operating at its fullest capacity is the most critical thing for every one of these companies. And making sure that you have the infrastructure to support those operations become increasingly important. At that point, you then have a slightly different operation for supporting manufacturing than you would for distribution of products. And therefore, when it was now product coming in through the ports, you know, which again, still is obviously going to be a huge component of it. But as people do a lot more, you know, as uh, Jared was saying, from just in time to sort of just in case and multiple channels is, is really what we're seeing is a lot of people looking to make sure they have multiple channels of sourcing products so that they can you know, at least not be limited by some of those bottlenecks we discussed before. And with that regionalization, if you will, A, you'll be able to get product much quicker to customers. You'll have a lot more, um, you know, I think hopefully balance between how much has to go through those limited uh, pipelines that we discussed from ports and rails and so on. They're all aging infrastructure that, you know, since 2000 years ago, they're still sending stuff on the cross, (laughs) across the water in big boats and nobody's figured out a better way to do it yet. So, you know, that's a tougher one to, to solve. And with the more localized manufacturing, you're able to eliminate some of those bottlenecks. Uh, you're able to, you know, obviously now get the consumer product faster. And that's, it will continue to be the driving force of the industry over the next years is how do we continue to get the customer the product faster? And with that, also needing the sort of omni-channel approach, because it's not going to be just a one outlet with which these manufacturers are now selling their products. It used to be, okay, you manufacture goods and you send it to a distributor. The distributor sends it to the retailer, retailer sells it to the customer. Now manufacturers, because of the access to directly to consumers and platforms that exist and so on, they're going to have direct to store sales. They're going to be able to do direct to their consumers. They're going to be going to distributors. So each operation now is going to be able is going to need to have to fulfill to all of those different outlets quickly and successfully and i think that's where sort of this you know consolidations and and multi-brand services allows those efficiencies to operate and, and allow these manufacturers to play in, in various different pools and jared you're very close to the ports how do you feel that nearshoring is is going to affect the industry so it's interesting, and I'm glad Ari touched on it. One of the things that Ari said was, you know, the transition from just in time to just in case. So there was like initially a, I won't call it a knee jerk reaction because it was, I'm sure, calculated by many inventory managers and and uh, supply chain professionals throughout the industry. But after we observed the supply chain crisis, after we observed some delay in, in ocean shipping over the past uh, few years coming out of the the huge demand that the pandemic placed upon industry the reaction was to carry more domestic inventory than previous and what that did in a short period of time is it filled up a lot of warehouses with material that was coming in but was not moving out rapidly and as a result that affects capacity you know at the end of the day Warehousing is a throughput industry. Warehousing does well when goods come into the warehouse, whatever value-added services in addition to standard storage and, and, and selection gets applied, and then you have the material leave the warehouse in a very timely way. And if you have trucking slow down because maybe there's a shortage of drivers or a shortage of capacity, if you have rail delay 
then as a result, material doesn't leave the warehouse promptly. And when new material comes in, because people are ordering in greater volume, you've got tighter capacity. And, you know, that could lead to to delay. Nearshoring was, in some respects, the ability for customers to do one of two things. One is, could they shift some manufacturing back to the United States? Or could they find domestic supply for materials that are that, that are needed in either their production processes or that they are looking to deliver directly to end customer, okay? Or, you know, if they cannot bring manufacturing or assembly back to the domestic United States, then you would have to import more. And if you're importing more, then you've got this volume increase. So for us, we saw a spike post supply chain crisis, post pandemic, uh, in inventories, those spikes sometimes were very, very hard to deal with. At the end of the day, warehouses are not coat rooms or hotels where we're looking to fill things up and then have it turn over the next day. We do want things to turn rapidly. Uh, that's helpful. And sometimes if you have too much inventory, the inventory turn slows down. So I, I think that that it causes a little bit of congestion, but I think ultimately the concept of nearshoring is not much different than, you know, last mile distribution or being close to your customers or your end user. You want to utilize distribution centers that are reliably close to where you want the product to, to be. And so we, we're not in a situation where you can say one distribution center in the United States can cover this half of the country and one distribution center here can cover this half of the country. I think you're going to have to see the use of plenty of distribution centers throughout your network close to where you need the material to be. And again, it's because you want to exercise that velocity. You want to get material to your end customer promptly. So I know we've been talking about that the supply chain process and and again the key components and in 2021 the 4PL industry 57.9 million dollars by 2031 it's estimated to be about 111.7 million dollars has this segment of the supply chain world affected your industry both either positive or negatively Jared Yeah so it's interesting I mean I have I have a a pretty clear opinion opinion on it. I mean, I think that, you know, a 4PL, which for the sake of argument is somebody who's not going to be directly operating, but someone who's going to be engaging the services of an asset-based operator can, can have both positive and negative effects. So positively, you know, you can be a resource, have a network uh, of providers throughout the world, and then manage the function for your end customer. And so, if if I don't service, let's say Houston, Texas, I can contract with a provider in Houston, Texas, and therefore extend my service offerings to Houston, Texas, without the need to hire a workforce or establish a facility. That's a positive. But the downside to it is that you're now adding an extra layer of communication directly between the customer and their supply chain and the operation. And so it comes down to execution. A good 4PL relationship could work really, really well. But I've also seen it the other way where somebody is just brokering an opportunity and sometimes causes additional confusion or doesn't have the full information or maybe sizes. And when I say sizes, I I don't exactly just mean size. I mean, capability, scope, professional abilities and so on, the wrong provider to do a, a given job. So that's where there could be a, a negative. Now, I could make this really clear in the sense where if I have a, a customer manufacturer ABC 
and they come directly to my operation, my customer service staff, my operations team can speak directly daily to them. We operate in the same systems. We're looking at the same inventory screens. We understand the same end customer urgency of a particular order. We know if there's a delay in inbound, we're more a part of that link we're a link in their supply chain. We can really holistically become an extension of their supply chain. If you put a 4PL between, let's say, Linden Warehouse and manufacturer ABC, it's going, that relationship may not be as effective because there's a, a layer of an intermediary between. So it's really going to depend on what role that 4PL takes in deciding whether that is going to be you know, an effective relationship. And I think that there are probably positives and negatives all the way from the contractual end, the legal end, the scope end, the technology end, at the ultimate interface. All of that plays a role. But uh, again, there can certainly be tremendous value. You know, we're working on a project now where we've extended our service offerings to a new geography by acting as a 4PL. So you can have both. It can work well, but there are things that you definitely need to, to, to watch out for. Let's talk a little bit about customer service and customer expectation. How do you think, Ari, that it's it's changed and, and where do you really, uh, where do you see it going? Can it, can we, we do anything faster? Can we do anything better? So I think there's always ways to do better and faster. And I think we've probably covered on it in various different areas, but yeah, the, the, there are inefficiencies that exist that have been developed based on sort of the needs of the world and also how these are not things that are easy to change. It's not like a uh, web page where you can, you know, put up a different screenshots and, and, and create a different messaging and, and get new, you know, pictures, et cetera. And a couple of days later, you're talking about huge buildings. You're talking about massive infrastructure and investment into machinery and, and into, you know, networks and resources and so on. And, and it's not like moving a jet ski. It's like moving a giant ocean, you know, liner. So those changes are going to occur slowly. Customer expectations change with what their expectations are in service industries and other things that can be a little bit more reactive. And, you know, I think people, have, for example, talk about obviously the next day, same day, and, you know, all of these approaches or, or delivery methods in order to win the customers. But with each new level of never been done before, using that couch example from before, now people are expecting a couch on the same day. So I don't think there's ever going to be a, it's an unsa insatiable appetite uh, of customers to always want more and pay less. That is, I think, fundamental to human nature and not going to be something that is going to change. How our industry can continue to meet those demands is really where I think there's going to be a lot that'll unfold over time to see what is truly the the right balance of those factors from, you know, having stuff too close to the, you know, close to the customers that can get there same day, but how much do you provide? And that's where the AI, I think, is going to be truly a, a, a real factor is, is that predictive methodology of being able to get ahead of customers' demands. And that's really, I think, where it's scary a bit, but quite honestly, that's where people are going to be able to get same day stuff is because they'll know, somebody's going to know before they know that that's what they need. <laughs> and therefore you'll have it on the way before it's even ordered. So Jared, I, I know we only have a little, little bit of time left, but briefly, I know you're very involved in, in government affairs uh, and, and with the IWLA government affairs group. Just briefly, any, any regulatory or legislative issues that you see um, really having an impact on the industry today? 
talking about this and then also having limited time. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I said. I, I know. We, that, we could but, pro- you, we, you've given us two future podcast ideas. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> for, for sure. But I'll, I'll touch on a couple areas real quick. So in general, rightly so, our industry is always focused on safety. Every operator you know, in this industry wants to, to provide the services that they provide uh, safely. Our biggest assets across the board, no matter who you are, are our people. And so our most important asset rather. And so as a result, we want to, you know, provide a warehousing working environment that is safe and free of hazard. And fundamentally, there's a lot of great operators in this industry and and they follow that. But the government often confuses in in some ways, not always, but anybody who operates a warehouse with the 3PL warehousing industry. And that has become a a legislative or regulatory challenge in, in the respect that if you are a company that is an online retailer, or you are a company that is a retail store warehouse owned by that retail store, you're not a 3PL as a service warehouse. But if there are high injury rates in those retail warehouses or in those online shipping warehouses, often that might prompt regulatory review or inspection to all warehouses. And so one of the things that I think has become a a regulatory challenge for our industry is to continue to let the regulators know that warehouse service providers like the IWA 3PL members are safe providers and that we have processes in place to make sure that we provide a safe workplace and that all warehouses, just because they have four walls and a roof, maybe some dock doors and some office, are not the same. So often we're grouped together. So again, it's just really more of a need for our industry to make the public aware that warehousing as a service, 3PL providers do endeavor and focus on safety. The second interesting thing about legislative opportunities is that we want to be efficient, not only in our operations, but we think that our government should be efficient in the way that it regulates. And so a good example of that is there's a voluntary program that businesses and manufacturers can have for their supply chain called CTPAT, which is the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. It's been around for a long time. And our customers can be members of CTPAT, but our facilities need to follow safe regulations, inspection of containers, making sure seals are intact, et cetera, to comply with CTPAT. And then a facility, I'll use Linden as an example, can go through multiple inspections over the years as part of our customers' validation with the government of the CTPAT program. But warehouses like Linden cannot be CTPAT verified or certified by the government right now. So ultimately we could have multiple inspections instead of just one. If we were able to be validated through this program, we could go through that once and then serve multiple clients over time. So there's a way to eliminate some of the redundancy of a lot of inspection by having a more unified program. And there is some talk in Washington and some focus on making a CTPAT pilot program for warehouse providers. One final point I'll touch on in the legislative or regulatory area is local. I think that throughout the country, we've just talked about the need for warehouses to expand, to have the capacity needed to ensure that this country has a resilient supply chain, but often you wind up having backlash. Certain places make it very difficult to get a new the, the, the permitting necessary to build a new warehouse. Sometimes people feel that although they're good providers of jobs, that you have too much warehousing construction. And yet in other states, they look to decrease carbon emissions, but they look to uh, put in rules that affect the warehouses, even though warehouses are not always operators of trucks. So 
Ultimately, I think the goal there is just to monitor different areas of local rulemaking as they affect the ability for warehouses to grow and do what they need to ensure that customers have enough capacity to allow for the growth that our economy needs. And so we definitely have to keep tabs on on those three areas. Commenting on the regulatory side, uh, I, I completely agree that the a lot of the uh, warehouses and because, you know, they're most of these facilities aren't sitting in the highly urbanized areas. They're a little bit outside of those. You end up dealing with counties and local boards and so on that uh, the you know, sometimes don't even have full-time positions within the governments over there. They're so, you know, sort of lightly populated. And definitely the infrastructure of what a, a major operation like a warehousing operation would be is a lot of that lift and that, you know, sort of variability across all of the different local governments is a definitely something that is a struggle when trying to maintain consistency. And the other thing is the changes in tariffs and different products that have over time and, and, and can go from you know, with one administration, you have, you know, taxes of certain types of products. And now everybody is going to now react to how we might be cost effective and competitive with those changes and to build up the infrastructure for that. And then two years later, you now have a changing to some other version and some other thing. And to be able to stay nimble enough to react and, and you know, having the government be able to, you know, support some of that flexibility and, you know, to uh, to pivot as things change is, is I think, would be definitely a helpful uh, roadmap. But yeah, no, thank you guys for the time. Really uh, great conversation and look forward to uh, speaking to you guys further. But uh, now we've got uh, a few other of these podcast concepts out there and uh, love to participate. Jared, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that uh, that this is great. I, I hope that we've added value today to the folks that might listen to this podcast. You know, I think just in seeing, going back to our first question, I think Ari and I both came uh, from other industries and other places and, and made a career in, in logistics. And, you know, that just goes to show the opportunity out there for folks to make careers in logistics. And I think that organizations like IWA provide that key educational component for people to advance in their careers. And I know that you can talk to any member. And if you look at their senior management team, it, it's folks that have come from operations, folks that have come from marketing, folks that have come from technology, folks that have come from under other industries. And I think that that's, that's great. And I think that's the way that our industry will continue to grow and thrive by providing opportunity for people to learn and grow in their positions and realize that logistics is a professional industry and we provide a professional service. So thanks for putting this together. Well, thank, thank you, you both. Thank you again for being valued IWLA members and uh, have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.